This is Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the Friday morning break with John Gibbs. This week, my guest is Dr. Abigail Branford, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Oxford University. Her research considers how we teach history in schools. Is balance possible when dealing with difficult subjects like empire and slavery? I think you'll enjoy our discussion. This is Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org. Download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back. And so those of you listening to Teachers Talk Radio this Friday morning and on the podcast, my guest this week, Abigail Branford. Abigail, thank you so much for joining me. I was just before we started. I don't know what, uh, it's a bit cloudy where you are apparently, but here it's beautiful sunshine. So for those of you, if you are listening, this is going to be out in a few weeks time. Uh, But first of all, thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. Well, Abigail, first of all, you are, as I said in the introduction, you are a postdoctoral researcher at Oxford University. Would you, would you start by saying what it is what it is you're doing these days and what, what the daily life of a, a postdoctoral researcher is? Well, you have um, two different ways you can be a, a postdoctoral researcher. So you've, you've done the doctorate, you have your, your driver's license, as it were, to be a researcher. And so either you are um, working on... Um, a project by uh, with a more senior researcher in a university, um, and so you're you're supporting a bigger project, or you have um, uh, some funding to do uh, your own research project. So I'm currently working on a a bigger research project with um, Dr. Jason Todd in the education department, but next year I'll be working on my my own research again with funding from the ESRC. It's, it sounds very, I can imagine being immersed in books and libraries, but it's obviously computer screens and <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. Yes. Well, Abigail, the reason, obviously, as we said before we started recording, the reason I contacted you, as I thought you'd be a brilliant guest on Teachers Talk Radio, is because I saw the title of your, uh, uh, your doctorate thesis. And the title is, I know you've changed it, so we'll start with why you changed it and what that means. But the title I saw was GCSE History, Policy Reforms and Student Development, How Students and Teachers Navigate the Thematic Study of Empires, Migration and People. And I remember from my teaching of GCSE History many years ago uh, is that uh, that 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 was one of the main themes and one of the more common thematic units within GCSE History. So first of all, you changed the title. That's very confusing. <laughs> well, so with a, a project that you spend quite a long time on, uh, your your focus will shift and you're trying to find what um, uh, one of my colleagues in the education department describes as the golden thread. You know, you have 100,000 words to play with and they somehow all need to come together um, under some broad um, theme that kind of keeps this giant document uh, together that has a golden thread going through it. And so the, the first title, you know, had a lot going on in it. You know, there was policy, there was student development. And I, um, after spending a long time thinking about what did I really want to say with this, you know, mammoth document, it was really about this theme of balance and how this had kind of become a way for teachers and students to navigate 
learning about this topic in a um, moment of polarization around the question of empire and so I, I wanted to interrogate what was this idea of balance doing and what was it perhaps limiting and what students and teachers could um uh could do with this theme of of empire in history education because yeah absolutely because I, I as you're talking i was thinking you were writing this and presumably over a number of months and years <laughs> um at a time when Teaching of empire, teaching of history has become enormously, well, really quite controversial. I mean, there's the pulling down of Edward Coulson's statue in Bristol. There's the um, uh, critical race theory controversy in the United States. We're well, quite sure we have an equivalent of that. But they, but how you teach slavery, how you teach British empire, and as you say, the, the, the approach, the sort of BBC, so you're suggesting there's a sort of BBC approach, which as long as you do it in a balanced way, then that's the way to approach it. So that's the the solution that's kind of um, uh, still quite mainstream of mm. of how to to navigate this. Um, and as you say, it is is a type of you know BBC balance. Um, but it's still a question of you know who gets to decide what what balance looks like. Um, and I think that that has somewhat drifted away from what you might have in more kind of um, academic texts, for example, wouldn't use those kinds of terms um, that you have in the, the balance sheet. But just to um, maybe elaborate a bit on sort of the, as you say, you know, this wider political context. So I actually have my, my background in post-conflict studies. So how do societies kind of transition from, say, conflict or dictatorship? And so I was working, um, if you are very good at distinguishing accents, you might be able to hear that I'm South African. Um, and so I was looking at history education in uh, South Africa in Northern Ireland um, as these kind of uh, two case studies that are seen as classic post-conflict societies, along with, say, for example, you know, Rwanda or Israel-Palestine. And I got to a point of um, thinking, well, in, in many of these conflicts, there's a, a third party that's sort of more in the background and not as big a part of these conversations as it might be, which is the the role of the colonial power in shaping um, these particular conflicts. Uh, and so this was in the mid 2010s. Um, I similarly also felt that perhaps there was an element of, oh, look at these, you know, strange people in their divided societies with their irrational beliefs. And so I thought for my next project, I wanted to look at um, the former Imperial Centre in Britain and ask the same kinds of questions about how our students and teachers navigating a difficult past. Uh, but then over the course of doing that project from 2018 uh, to 2022, uh, you know, everything changed that it wasn't um, in the background at all. It was very much uh, in the forefront of conversation and the media and reassessing the colonial past. And so it was a, a very interesting time to be doing this research, but also a very intense time. And of course, it, that approach, the, the, the balance approach. So you say this is, these are difficult, difficult topics. And we, as, as, as history is, I was thinking before we started talking, before we started, before, before this interview, that history is a problematic sort of subject. <laughs> In, you know, it's, it's not just the delivery of, you know, this is how to do things. This is, the, you know, this is the transfer of a technical knowledge or something. It's the construction of its own knowledge. You know, it's what we study is what we wish to study. It's almost like unlike any other subject. So before you even start teaching, whatever you, whatever it is you decide, whatever theme or content, 
you've made some sort of value-based judgment about what you think is valuable and what you think you're trying to do. There must be some implicit sense of what the reason we study this is because we want to heal diversity, heal problems in society or put, put that particular bit of history behind us or reconcile ourselves to it. So it's got a purpose to it, which is, well, ideological, isn't it? It's, there's, there's sort of no escaping the problem of history. Totally. I mean, you are making very value-laden um, choices by choosing which uh, which stories, whose stories are you telling and how. Um, and so you're, you're sort of investing in this idea that, well, young people should know about these groups of people um, and look at it in these kinds of ways. And there's no kind of, as you say, technical... Um, sort of solution for for that problem you have to to make a choice and you can't possibly cover everything in someone's primary and secondary education or even in higher education you're going to have to specialize at some point so it's uh, it's a difficult terrain inherently as you say yes it is and the the choice to be balanced is a value choice i mean whenever anyone watching the bbc can often be infuriated by the well on the other hand approach because you think well that neutralizes any sort of sense of, of um, controversy by saying, well, there's always a different point of view. So if the British Empire is both good and bad, I don't know, I don't know slavery can be good and bad, <laughs> but there can be different points of view about slavery, no doubt. And so that, that in a sense, is itself a highly value-based, value because it, it, it doesn't allow for any real conclusion. You end up, you end up, don't you end up sort of nowhere with a balanced approach yes. to history? And so uh, I actually found a lot of the work um, that people were doing about the media to be really useful for my thesis. So um, I found that people had been thinking about, uh, you know, as you say, BBC neutrality. So um, Stuart Hall, who'd been, you know, thinking about uh, the BBC and Panorama and, you know, how this um, balancedness gets constructed. So he was talking about this, you know, for decades in Britain about the media. And so I found that really useful to think about for history education and similarly people writing about um how uh the media in the u.s tries to you know uh, at points have uh climate change scientists versus climate change deniers or um uh vaccine uh, researchers and anti-vaxxers and sort of you know where, where does that um kind of trying to be balanced break down and create a sense of legitimacy around certain actors which um according to other academic metrics, shouldn't have legitimacy in a, a public forum about certain topics. But the media sort of creates a sense of, well, these people have a, a valid opinion on this topic. Yes, in, in order to, the, the broadcaster does it in order to validate their own sense of, of uh, objective distance. You know, we're above this, we float above this argument. We, but we, <laughs> and that's what you as historians must do, is float above history. And yet, that leave, where does that leave you in history, in a sense, when you're looking at topics like conflict, and especially in the, in the immediate, I mean, it'd be fascinating to hear about how South Africa teaches its history and how it taught its history in, over the last few years. But, you know, that, that, that would seem to be, it's far, you know, it's fine to be, you can be objective about the Middle Ages much more easily than you can be objective about Northern Ireland or Yes, it's definitely a different project in a way to teach about things that are still very much with us. Um, I'm sure many medievalists would, would argue that, you know, um, the phenomena that they study might be with us in some forms. Um, but certainly there's something that feels very sharp about empire migration. 
in in the present day. But in terms of you know being the um, the objective historian, I think one of the interesting things is that in in England more so than say in uh, Germany or in South Africa or um, in other spaces where history education is conceptualized slightly differently in England, there's a very strong, you know, sense of in history education schools, we want to make students become better historians. And this idea of, you know, we are being led by academic history. However, there's an interesting shift that then happens that um, the full range of what the discipline of history means and the contestations within academic history becomes kind of narrow to this idea of an objective historian, which a lot of people who are currently working in academic history would say is a very contested idea. There are lots of sub-branches of history that would reject those kinds of ideas of objectivity. Um, and so it's it's a sense of, you know, um, history education in England is looking at a particular slice of academic history and and the full sort of range of debates within uh, academic history is not necessarily represented in this idea of making students better historians. Oh, that's interesting, yes, because I remember from teaching history, GCSE particularly, well, there was an awful, as you absolutely said it there, a sort of emphasis on being the, this is how historians approach a source. This is how historians read a source. And the historian, you know, how can you tell bias in the source? How can you tell, look at the, look at the originator, you know, who are, where the source originated from. So you, you develop the ideas of critical thinking about history because that's how historians do it. And there's, there's an assumption that that is, that is therefore going to be sort of intellectually good for you in the rest of your life. You then be a more critically thinking sort of person. Exactly. But I think that at the same time, it's within um, this beautiful phrase that you used earlier about, you know, still assuming that you are floating above it yeah. in some sense. And so even the history essay is premised on this idea of being sort of dispassionate and uninvolved in what you're writing about. So this kind of, you know, on on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that it kind of removes you as someone maybe implicated in in any of the things that you're, you're speaking about. You're you're trying to perform this idea of, you know, floating above it all. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Listening to the Friday morning break with me, John Gibbs, on Teachers Talk Radio. My guest this week, Dr. Abigail Branford. We are discussing how to teach history is a balanced approach, always the best way when dealing with difficult topics. Were you saying then that there's a sort of greater freedom to be more ideological <laughs> when you come to academia? You know, the school must, above all, not be it must be balanced. It must be critical thinking arrives at the idea that everything can be critically thought about whereas when the, if you are in the world of, of um, university education it's possible to 
take a view. I take a take a uh, well, you know, think of the, the sort of Marxist historians like Eric Hobsbawm or something. You know, kind of idea. That this is how you can sh- you know you're the you're the shaping of history, not just at the trying to trying to recognize that there are different views. You're now trying to create a view. Exactly. So you're. Um encouraged even to talk about you know the perspective from which you are approaching a particular topic and so that's seen as kind of a, a means of uh, being reflective or being accountable in the sense of so for example if you um, you know wrote a particular history from a Marxist perspective if you didn't declare it was from a Marxist perspective that would be seen as um, uh, an omission I suppose um, whilst, you know, in schools, you might be more encouraged to say, well, the Marxists say this and the capitalists say that or something to that effect. Um, but in, in university, you're um, cultivating your own sense of voice and trying to uh, be explicit about it so that other people can then both see where you're coming from and also better critique the limitations of the perspective that you're coming from. So so in that sense, the, the GCSE history student being told this is how the historian behaves that's not that's not true is it (laughs) the historians aren't behaving like that the historians aren't saying well on the one hand on the other hand this is what they think this is what they think because i'm guessing that if you wrote a a book or did an extensive piece of research we simply said there were a number of various views you're simply you're simply doing a survey of other people's ideas which is clearly not what you're doing you are wanting to be building arguments to say this is how i think things are you do want to show that you are considering alternative perspectives um but you are also always aware of the ideological frameworks in which um you know either people in the past are writing or the other scholars in your particular subdiscipline are writing um so it's um it's perfectly possible to declare a position and and defend it uh, in fact that's probably makes for much more interesting writing than this uh pretends to extreme neutrality, I suppose. Yes, which is, and I could imagine teachers being quite scared. Well, schools, I mean, society may be being quite scared because there's something to be, there's something, as we said, it's not an un, it's not an, a, a neutral ideological position to say there are various points of view because in a sense that is, I remember when I first started teaching A-level politics, um, I thought, well, why is this? No, the GCSE politics it isn't really taught in the lower school much. I mean, civics is a sort of how mechan- the mechanics of political systems. But there was a, or I, actually, I better thought of a better example. In the 1988 education reforms and the national curriculum, history couldn't be taught in schools in the last 10 years. That was deemed to be current affairs. So schools must steer, steer clear of things that might influence students' views about Mrs. Thatcher when Mrs. Thatcher was the Prime Minister or, you know, or uh, whatever. So that was current affairs and somehow current affairs stopped and history started 10 years ago. <laughs> so, ding, you know, that's now in the past and therefore you can be, and the implication was that you could be objective more about 10 years ago, but you couldn't possibly be objective about the, the current times. But the overall pattern is you have to be objective when teaching students about history, otherwise that can become dangerous, I guess. Or something like that, or, or leads the teach leads the teacher, and since teachers are often viewed as being a bit left wing, uh, you know, part of the sort of public service approach to things, that you wouldn't you wouldn't want to unleash <laughs> them <laughs> on students. I don't know. That was a bit of a but I think that uh, <laughs> even this idea of well, you know, we don't learn about the 
the present uh, in a formal curriculum sense is, as I'm sure um, you would recognize as a, a former teacher, slightly artificial, that the present and what's going on today inevitably leaks into the classroom in class discussions, um, in yeah. what students are bringing up. And so it's it's always present, even if it's not um, examinable. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, and as you say, and you're often using the past, whatever piece of past you choose, and I guess that must be true of medieval history, whatever, you're using the past really as a commentary on the present. I mean, that's people say that's what history is anyway, is, the, is really we're talking about ourselves at all times. But I remember when I first started teaching, one of the first schools I was in was a very progressive school. So the teachers were all called by their first names, rather unusual in this country. There were no school uniforms. That wasn't so uncommon then, but it's really uncommon now. And there were lots of, um, you know, teachers turned up. To, I turned up my first day wearing a suit. <laughs> and they said, let's say, oh, don't do that, John. Let's come in with a T-shirt and jeans. That's, this is the, that's that kind of school. So it was a T-shirt and jeans kind of school. And we taught a module because you could design your own courses there. And we taught a theme called apartheid. And apartheid was fully functioning. You know, back then it was it was there. Nelson Mandela was still in prison. And that, so we talked about it, But it really what we were essentially teaching them was using South Africa as a model to look at racism indirectly. It was a safe way of saying we are a multicultural, increasingly multicultural society. This is what racism is when you see it kind of in its rawest form. So we're really teaching you about living in Britain today via South Africa. And that's very common in a lot of um, societies where the sense is that talking about things directly would be um, too too intense, uh, would uh, have some uh, risks for, say, conflicts in the classroom. And so, uh, for instance, um, some schools in Northern Ireland will choose to teach about Israel-Palestine because that was seen as a, a forum in which uh, issues could be discussed that had some sense of parallel, but without necessarily speaking directly to um, the situation in Northern Ireland itself. I mean, the, the downside with that is obviously that, you know, there's a limit to every sense of analogy. And in th theory, you had some missed opportunities there to maybe speak more directly to, to students' own worlds. And also, another danger I felt at the time was that you were, that was kind of, racism was there. And no matter how you might have felt as the, the teacher's intention was to say, we're teaching about racism potentially everywhere. In fact, the student's message, the message received, as it were, was, well, that's that's there. And, and those are bad people doing bad things in a place far away. Not not like us. <laughs> we're exactly. And so I think that um, apartheid history is the, the correct analogy for pointing out that the uh, the sort of balance sheet framing, um, which is of, of empire, which is common in many schools here. So, for example, you know, you'd have a, a list of so-called pros and cons where the pros in inverted commas would be around uh, imperialists building certain kinds of infrastructure. So railways being the iconic example. Um, and then the so-called cons being uh the institutionalization of racist hierarchies, um, the uh, use of, of violence to to suppress indigenous populations, so that that sense of um, the the balance sheet as the the way that um, empire has traditionally been taught in in England um, isn't uh, necessary. It isn't the only option. It's not inevitable. And the reason why we know this is because. Apartheid history has many of the same features of uh, colonial history, 
And yet it would be absurd to teach apartheid as a system of pros and cons. That is not the way in which it's taught either in Britain or in South Africa. Um, it's seen as a clear, you know, systematic violation of human rights, but it similarly shares with colonialism, um, racism, segregation, economic exploitation, uh, political violence. Um, you know, uh, the apartheid government also built railways as the um, British rule in the region did before them, and, and both are condemned by the UN. Uh, however, there's um, a, a distinction that's made between colonialism, which is framed as a uh, so-called grey area, um, and then apartheid is seen clearly as a um, systematic uh, oppressive system. And so I think that shows some of the um, the scope for there are different ways to teach these historical features is that there's a uh, an active choice to see um, colonialism in a uh, as as this kind of balanced phenomena. Yes, on the one hand, on the other hand, it's, it's, as you say, it's become it's almost a culture a way of thinking that's part of our part part of the culture. But also, I was thinking while you're talking there about the way in which students are very uh, it, they very uh, instrumental in that they they pick up very quickly what it is that will get them rewards. You know, it's a bit like, you know, any any child or realises from the people teaching them which is which gets a smile, which gets affirmation, which gets, ah, oh, that's good, which gets a tick in the margin. And of course, balancing will always get that sort of tick. Oh, yes, on the other hand, you showed, you showed this. And the examination structure itself is going to be the classic essay, as you, said, you, you sort of alluded to earlier. You know, you, the, the, the way of writing things until you get to university almost always on the one hand on the other hand on the one hand on the other hand and this is what i think so you're you're rewarded for for balancing whether whether the whether the course the you know the, that that's running through the course like a sort of word to a stick of rock and so i think that is somewhat what the the balance sheet functions to do is that it's um sort of contains empire in a certain way by saying well here we can say other good things and here we can say other bad things is that it kind of it's a bit of a psychic balm in a way um for engaging with that history but when when you sort of look at the the worksheets that this involves it feels sometimes that the things that are described as you know the quote-unquote good parts are kind of so trivial that they function only to create a sense of balance and they're not serious historical arguments so for example um in my field work um watching um, uh, teachers and students in schools, there was an activity which, you know, listed aspects of um, imperialism and asked students to highlight the good parts in green and the bad parts in pink. And so it had, you know, sitting literally side by side was spread cricket and rugby as the good green bit and the transatlantic slave trade as the bad red bit. And so it gives you a sense of sort of that this imperative to balance is so um, important that it creates these kind of absurd comparisons <laughs> yes i like that idea yes we uh well they got rugby <laughs> Just, we gave them rugby so we can't be all bad <laughs> that's, a, that's a lovely thought um when you you said you carried out field work so that involved going into schools and looking looking at teachers in action as well. yes so i um i went to to five schools um apologies i went to three schools uh, and worked with five teachers who were all teaching the migration empires and the people module. 
um, and I did focus groups with their students. I watched um, the uh, the classes for that module, and I also did um, surveys with students in seven separate schools, um, looking at how their views on imperialism developed over the course of the module. So I've realized that this this pros and cons framework um, was both not necessary for the module, uh, but it was still often there. So what I mean by that is that, so the the module specifications, the um, the criteria created by the exam boards uh, that says, you know, this is what students need to know, this will be the examinable content. It didn't say anything about pros and cons. Instead, it said students need to know about the political, social, and economic effects of empire. However, looking at the textbooks for that module, um, one did use a balance sheet framing and another textbook didn't use a balance sheet framing. And then the teachers, uh, some would use a balance sheet framing, uh, even if it wasn't in the textbook their particular class was using, uh, others wouldn't use a balance sheet framing. And then most interestingly, many students, even if neither their textbook nor their teacher used a balance sheet framing, when I asked them about the British Empire, they would be the ones volunteering this balance sheet framing. So it goes uh, to show how deeply embedded this framework is in British society for as a way of thinking about empire. Exactly. It's, um, as you say, partly this kind of reflecting the way that they know they are assessed. Um, and I think there's also something something else there that's um, around students' own sort of self-fashioning, how they want to present themselves. So uh, this you know particular generation has had more information thrown at them than any other generation in history, probably. And so they constantly want to be seen as sophisticated consumers of information. They, um, speaking to students, they had a very um, deep... Uh, um, appreciation for uh, their um, their sense of autonomy. They really wanted to see themselves in making up their own minds about controversial issues. Um, and so, for some students, uh, the way that this kind of manifested, this way of you know seeing themselves as autonomous and um, uh, curating information, was through this this balance sheet framing. They were saying, well, you know, other people are dogmatic, but I you know float above this, and I can see both sides of the argument. However, for other students, a way of similarly showing their autonomy is to be very critical of empire. And so they were saying, well, other people are dogmatic and they you know, buy into these um, aspects of imperial nostalgia, uh, but I am more critical than that. But there are both ways of sort of saying um, that, uh, of distinguishing themselves from what they saw as lazy thinking in the rest of society. So either they were saying, I am being balanced in an unbalanced society, or I am being critical in an uncritical society. So I think there's a level of sort of student's agency in, in how they're using their perspectives on empire to project a certain version of themselves. Whether, 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 well, whether the teacher likes it or not, um, that is the implicit sort of purpose of teaching. History, particularly, is the creation of identity. And, but the identity you're creating, uh, certainly uh, in, in the days when people pointed to a map on the wall and said, look at the red bits, that's the British Empire, and we, we can all be very proud, there was a dis distinct attempt to create identity. And whereas now when you say, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, they're still creating some sense of identity among students. They're still building, the, uh, you know, this is me. <laughs> this, is, this is how I am in relation to this. 
And I was thinking about the student who says, well, I'm, I am the critical thinker. They, you know, in a sense, they, they're sort of buying into the, the sort of liberal approach to, to knowledge, which is that all things are up for consideration. There are no certain narratives. There's just different points of view. You are, and you are that person. You are the person who will live everywhere, will go everywhere. You don't have a, there's a sort of um, almost teaching the identity of the everywhere person. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. BBC News reports on GCSE results and the impact resits in English and Maths could have on poor 16 providers. According to figures it has published on the news website, over 167,000 pupils in England received Grade 3 or below in Maths, whilst 172,000 failed English language. The number of pupils not achieving Grade 4 in English language is highest for a decade. The Association of Colleges has estimated that the extra GCSE resits could cost around £16 million for the year, and highlighted the yo-yo effect the pandemic has had on resits making planning a huge challenge. Julie McCulloch of Education Union Askell said resits were demoralising for students and reform of English and maths qualifications was badly needed. Last year, only 20% of those retaking a maths GCSE achieved grade four or above. The BBC also reported on GCSE pass rates in England, Wales and Northern Ireland as falling. The drop was steepest in England, but in Wales and Northern Ireland, grades were always meant to be higher. Analysis on the news website also indicates that in England, the gap between regions with lowest and highest proportions of GCSE passes has grown, and that state schools had a steeper fall in pass rates than in private schools. Schools Week features a story on A-level results and the widening attainment gap between North and South. According to data published on its website, the North East now has the lowest proportion of A star and A grades, lower than pre-pandemic levels, at 22%. At the same time, London and the South East have recorded the biggest rises when compared to 2019. Labour's Shadow Schools Minister said the results showed the failure of the government's levelling up agenda. The article discusses a range of factors which could contribute to the disparity across the best and worst performing regions, including existing long-term deprivation, exacerbated by the pandemic, food insecurity, made worse by the current cost of living crisis, and more usual factors such as attendance, device access and the use of catch-up schemes. 
Full details can be found on the Schools Week website. The Guardian also takes a look at academic outcomes for pupils, this time through the lens of those referred to social services during childhood. It states that data suggests these pupils are twice as likely to fail GCSE Maths and English than other pupils. Data from a three-year period found 53% of teens who had been referred to social care did not achieve a Grade 4 pass in both the GCSE subjects. This is in contrast to 24% in those not subject to a referral. The analysis was carried out by the charity Action for Children. It is the first study to examine data for children with a referral rather than just those who receive support. Around 318,000 children a year are referred to social care, although many do not meet thresholds to receive support. The Guardian also featured comments from school leaders on the impact high levels of absence and poor mental health of pupils have had on outcomes for some. Many cited a lack of formal support for pupils and their families, contributing to further strains on school staff, as they tried to plug gaps usually filled by other services, such as social care and the NHS. Following on from its examination of regional disparity in academic outcomes across different regions, Schools Week also reports on proposals for elite six forms being given the go-ahead. The Eaton Star 16-19 Free Schools, a collaboration between Eaton College and Star Academies, will open in Dudley, Teesside and Oldham. This is part of the 15 new free schools announced by government in the last week. The aim is to improve education standards and get more pupils from the North and Midlands to Oxbridge. The Sixth Form Colleges Association has, however, warned that more sixth forms could lead to existing high-performing provision being unnecessarily disrupted. Eton College will provide financial and extracurricular support through its partnership with STAR. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan commented on the 15 new schools saying, we want to make more good school places available to families. The 15 schools also include two new university technology colleges, the first to be approved in five years, and a Brit School North to be opened in Bradford. The sixth form sector has reacted to the new plan, saying that in the 55 education investment areas, there are already enough colleges and school sixth forms in the areas to meet need. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with me, John Gibbs, on Teachers Talk Radio. My guest this week, Dr. Abigail Branford. We are discussing how to teach history. Is a balanced approach always the best way when dealing with difficult topics? students identified in the sense of um, often particularly uh, students with a a white British background might use the the phrase we did this right and I think that that in itself is very interesting because um, there's there's no necessary reason for a uh, young person living today um, in uh, let's say a, a, a marginalized school on the 
city periphery to identify essentially with very upper class men who uh, then became imperial officers, right? It's a slightly flattening idea that, oh, we are all British and part of this, you know, uh, particular chain. Uh, it, there's um, there's something very flattening about national identities in that way to say that oh well we are part of the same collective when really there's a, in some sense a you know an ocean of difference both temporally and um, perhaps in terms of class structure or gender or uh, various other identities yet that all gets squashed into we. Yeah, we 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 who've arrived at this or. We the uh, the the people that float above the the knowledge or or the other uh, yes interesting and I also was wondering whether in a increasingly multiracial multicultural society multiracial society in this in the UK the very the choice of topics like slavery well uh, immigration and empire and imperialism and 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 um, and so on is is uh, you could you could listen you you could listen to that and feel well. These these are I, mean, I think this particularly problem in the United States with a lot of sort of teaching of black history is that it becomes the history of victimhood. You know this this is the history of how uh, badly you were treated, how badly you. <laughs> if, and even if you're not using the term you, is that there there could be someone in the audience who thinks well that's about me. You know that's that's about where I came from. Is the is is its exploitation? Is its destruction? Is its um, use by those so there may not be a very there may be a sense of alienation among students from that way definitely i think that this um sense of uh weighing the pros and cons and dispassionate sort of um uh structure of the balance sheet wasn't really made for students from uh from former colonies that if you have a heritage in a former colony that that balance sheet essentially positions you in a way that you are asked to look at the bright side of your own dehumanization yeah. and that, that that takes us to to the united states and and uh critical race theory where there's an attempt there to say look let's look very seriously and critically at the history of of slavery and, and racism after slavery uh which then explodes as an idea that you're you're undermining the um the bonds which link America together. You know, you, you explain to one people why you were exploited and other people why you should be guilty for that. I, I'm wondering, for instance, I mean, this, in South Africa, how, how today, you may have, I don't know if you know about, anything about this, but how today white students are taught about apartheid and whether they could, you know, this is, this is the history of what, it, it's a bit like the, the, you know, how is, how is Nazi Germany taught in Germany? I mean, it's kind of that, 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 yeah, I can see how it's taught from an outsider's point of view. How do you teach the people whose parents and grandparents were involved? So I think there's a way to maybe connect these these stories of um, Britain, uh, South Africa and the US that um, might kind of give us a, a framework for thinking about contestations in, in the three spaces. So I think in, in each case, there's a there's a deep national mythology around, you know, what what did this state gift to the world? So, for example, um, in, in Britain, this mythology around, um, well, well, the British Empire modernised the world in some benevolent sense. In uh, the US, it would be, you know, this idea that uh, the US gifted the idea of democracy 
and um, equality uh, of of all men, quote unquote, to to the world. And in South Africa, it would be um, the the triumph of racism, the um, uh, the kind of initiation of a, um, a harmonious kind of peace. Um, and and in each of these three spaces, that mythology is starting to see big big cracks. Um, so, for example, in South Africa, the uh, 2015 student uprisings, for example, focused a lot on the idea of, uh, well, it wasn't a, um, uh, a piece that necessarily brought justice. Um, so bringing attention to continuing economic inequality and the way that um, the, the transition sometimes gets framed as, well, the, the, the story is done when apartheid structures very much still structure South African society in many ways. Um, so the the sort of conflicts that might be happening in the classroom might be around um, uh, young people who may feel that the the transition was deeply incomplete or fundamentally flawed uh, versus some students who feel that the issues in South African society um, are not to do with apartheid. Or you might have some students who feel um, that the uh, the radical critiques of the, the transition to democracy are um, somehow uh, undermining their own sense of identity. Um, so you, you have quite complex classrooms in that way, um, which then teachers are, are trying to navigate. Um, and then with uh, the, the end of segregation of schooling, um, many white students will be in uh, classrooms that are multiracial. So it's it, it's difficult to say you know how are white students talked about this when they are not um, in separate schools. There is um, a, a lively conversation around whether those schools are in a sense culturally white or dominated by um, uh, white ideologies. However, they are not um, simply white schools anymore in terms of student demographics. Yes, I mean what comes out very clearly from what you were saying there is if if you think history is going to be a difficult subject we started with saying it's quite problematic <laughs> in Britain it's uh, how how to navigate as you use that term navigate through teaching history in somewhere like South Africa and that um, and that way in which history would yes you, you there would be a, there must have been a time and of course I can remember this very much I think when I was talking earlier about apartheid and we, when I was teaching it early in my career and it existed later on it became the story it was a different story the story was as you say the harmonious transition the release of nelson mandela and the rainbow society so there was the creation of something beautiful and that became another model why can't we all be like that that's how it can be dealt with that's how we can apply that to other situations human beings are good after all <laughs> and it's a sort of a model <laughs> that was used as um encouraging for, for anyone who wanted to have a parable of human harmony. And yet the, and yet anyone coming into a classroom was actually it's much more complicated than that. And it wasn't so harmonious after all. It's going to be a spoiler. You know, they're going to be the, going to be the, unpleasant, the person who spoils the party and turns the music off. <laughs> You're not going to be very popular. Exactly. Disrupting that narrative does ruffle feathers, right? Um, whether you're here or at home, it's... Um it's difficult to address the, the complexity of the present um, when 
it would be so much easier to, in a sense, tell this, you know, story of, of triumph of good over evil in a certain sense, right? Just as it, just as it's to, to students in this country, if you say, well, there, there was slavery, we were very bad doing that. And <laughs> then we stopped because of very good people who learned that it was bad. And that was the end of that. Uh, and then if you say, well, there, but there are all sorts of threads in which slavery and the and the wealth accrued from slavery is still around today, giving a certain privilege to you or to you in the society, making a connection which is, makes people uncomfortable. So maybe maybe history history's caught in a tension between you know reassuring you about a bond which unifies you with your fellow man and people in your society, and at the same time making you feel uncomfortable and question things. It's sort of um, disconcerting and yet reassuring at the same time. I think that's true for a sort of um, a summary about what what can the discipline do at its best. Um, but I think that there are elements of the balance sheet that um, prevents that kind of sense of full humanity. And it's I, there's a few pedagogical reasons why I think it it does that. So firstly, you know, the the balance sheet sort of makes you ask, what did imperialists do? And you know, are those things good or bad? But now you've put imperialists at the center of the story. Everybody else who is not an imperialist can only be either a victim or a beneficiary in that story. So there's no sense of um, whether uh, people resisted or um, collaborated with or ignored or thwarted uh, imperialists if, um, or simply had other things going on. You've created a sense in which nothing was happening until imperialists arrived and nothing happened since they left. Uh, however, imperialists are Johnny-come-lately to very complex politics unfolding in all of these regions. But the balance sheet gives you a very thin temporal slice of every region. Um, and then second, so th there's a sense of the full humanity of, of people is, is diminished by um, by the balance sheet often being, you know, one of the only times that they encounter uh, histories of, of spaces like um, sub-Saharan Africa, um, South Asia, the Middle East. Um, and then um, there's also a sense in which the balance sheet robs um, phenomena of their colonial context. So if you're only told about a thing that it is either good or bad, that doesn't tell you how it functions in a colonial society. So, for example, you know, this classic idea of, well, the railways and they're a good thing. If, if you, all you're told is that they're a good thing, you're more likely to think of it as, you know, trains the way that you interact with them as a young person in England, which is passenger trains. However, trains in colonial societies are um, mainly functioning as uh, taking resources from the interior to the coast, so extracting resources or bringing military troops from the coast to the interior, so control. Um, and, and all of that becomes erased in the sense of, well, railways are a good thing. Or similarly, um, students often tell me about, you know, well, empire was good for trade and the trade is a good thing. Um, and, you know, it's possible that that's partly because they turn on the news and, you know, they might hear Britain's done a trade deal with Australia and that's a good thing or that trade has gone down with Europe and that's a bad thing. But when it comes to understanding, you know, how does trade function in a colonial society, there are power dynamics there that need to be considered. So, for example, unfree labor, you know, who, who is doing the work that facilitates this, this trade and under what conditions? And so none of that comes through in a, in a balance sheet. Um, and my last kind of pedagogical reason for um, 
the, the balance sheet being a very limited way of looking at this history would be uh, that it also separates out things that um, are part of the same process. So a student might say to me, oh, well, you know, with empire, there was education on the one hand, but cultural repression on the other hand. Um, that prevents them from sort of seeing that education is kind of the vehicle through which indigenous populations are repressed and assimilated, that it's taking two parts of the same thing and wrenching them apart into to different columns. And so even if um, uh, you don't necessarily buy the uh, sort of ethical arguments for, for why the balance sheet is inappropriate, I think even just from a standpoint of a full understanding of colonial histories, that it's, it's quite limiting. It's almost a fault with any kind of history that's taught in schools. How can you escape this? Because you're going to be telling some kind of simplified story. There's going to, and it, whenever you start to construct a story, you start to put in women struggles and overcoming struggles, winners and losers, heroes and villains. In order for that story to be something that people can engage with, and and even if the story is there was there were these good people and bad people or there were good there, were, there was two sides to an argument and eventually it was resolved a sort of you know antithesis synthesis sort of story no matter what, no matter how you do it you're distorting and as you I use the phrase you used there was diminishing it's almost as if any kind of history taught in schools is going to fall into this diminishing limiting oversimplifying sort of yeah, so I think all um, pedagogy, even all communication requires some form of simplification of, you know, incredibly complex things into more simplified forms. And so I think that so far a lot of the critiques of the balance sheet have been around, oh, well, it's oversimplified. And I think I'm trying to point out that it's not merely a matter of, of simplification, but that there are really specific um problems of how it's oversimplified or that it's not just about it being simple but it's about where is the spotlight and so for example you might say um, that we could also teach a, um, a a somewhat simplified reduced version of history uh, for if we for example took say the, the history of East Africa and that we did uh, a module on, on East Africa However, I think that if we had a, a thematic module, um, a GCSE module on a particular region that experienced colonization, that um, had this long sweep of history, so a GCSE, you need to have one module that's a long sweep of history, that could then include pre-colonial, colonial and post-colonial eras and show colonialism as an episode within that broader sweep of history, that that would still be a better version of colonial history in which uh, you can show a broader range of actors as agents, that it, it would still be simplified, but it would still be preferable. So I think that's where I want to um, to couch this, is I'm not um, trying to say that we can get away from simplification, but that we need to make strategic choices about who are the people that we focus on when we only have so much time? Yes, be, uh, yeah, yeah. I, in a way, if if I'm complaining about oversimplification, it it, it is schools we're talking about here, and these are young people, <laughs> and this is the begin. This is this is the beginning of their experience of history in a way. So inevitably, there will be a degree of simplification and and generalization and so on. So what you're saying is, if you want to escape the the, the kind of structure of balance that all, all, all debates have two sides to them and so on. You, you want to sort of stretch the history 
to create a longer, more, and therefore, to some extent, more complex story. Well, so the Migration, Empires and People module is from 700 to the present. It's a big, ambitious um, module. And so um, it's investing that kind of um, resource um, of, of time and attention and content into a, a different frame. So I think that the taking the British Empire as itself the frame um, does certain things to the narrative. So you might have heard of um, Our Island Story and it's become this kind of symbol for a kind of parochial national frame of, of telling um, British history. And I think that when we take the British Empire as the frame, we create our empire story, which similarly has this effect of kind of places become relevant when um, British imperialists arrive and irrelevant when British imperialists leave. And so I think that we can do something different um, that uses the same amount of, say, word count in a textbook, for example, but but shift who the protagonists are of that narrative. So whether you couch yourselves as heroes and villains, or even as anti-heroes and anti and so on, it, but now, no matter how, if you place yourself, the British Empire, at the centre of the story, as heroes or villains, or both, they still are at the centre of the story. Exactly. And it also creates all kinds of other dysfunction in that um, it's, it projects them as sort of uh, extremely um, competent. Uh, they always seem to um, uh, succeed in their colonial endeavours, when I think if we switch the perspective, we would also see that the British Empire is full of huge amounts of incompetence and not knowing what you're doing. And of course you wouldn't. You don't know anything about what's going on around you in these spaces that you're unfamiliar with. And so I think that we could actually see more dimensions to um, Im imperial characters when it, it's not um, a, a tale of you know their um, their projects, if you like. Oh, yeah, I've just thought of a brilliant GCSE thematic module you could teach. It would be something that would be called something like Waste, Cock-Ups and Stupidity. <laughs> a, a narrative history of us. <laughs> I, I, would, I would study that. I would study that. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Uh, I think that would be very popular. <laughs> So you're, of course, we're coming to the end now, actually. Uh, we've, we've whizzed through. And so you, you said uh, as a, as a uh, postdoctoral researcher, you get a chance to, uh, with helping someone else with the research, and you've done something, we haven't talked about Northern Ireland. You've done some work on that. And I know you've published, you've been involved in publishing some things on that. But next year or so, you, as you said at the beginning, you can choose your own area to research. So which, which direction do you think you'll get into? Well, I need to um, publish this this work that I've done previously. Um, one of the difficult things about an academic career is that you're, you know, constantly juggling, particularly between um, teaching and and research. And so I need to uh, go back to my um, research that I've been discussing here and um, uh, publish it both for you know um, academic audiences and and also I want to create it in um, forms that will be more useful for for teachers to engage with because these academic journals are often behind paywalls and so on and so forth. But I'm I'm also looking to the to the future and I'm um, thinking about what what my my next project is going to be um, and so I'm I'm interested in um, thinking about 
the the political debates that happen when curricula become designed. So I think, uh, for example, something that had a, a big impact on how empire was taught in Britain is um, the requirement for uh, more history to be British history. Um, and so that that created incentives to teach a history of the British Empire as British history. Um, and so I, I want to look at other case studies of sort of how how do debates about how curricula become designed play out? Um, so, for example, you know, uh, as we've been talking about, the the debates in in the US have been particularly interesting, but that will be happening at an individual state level with lots of local actors um, with a much more sort of decentralized type of system. So I'm I'm curious as to um, if I compare uh, the the British system, uh, or or rather I should say the English system, right? As each of the um, education um, systems in in the UK are, are devolved, so the English system versus um, a, a particular state in the US, I think is is where I, I next want to want to go to see um, how how do those decisions made at that level kind of then uh, filter down into the classroom and probably uh, become something slightly different from maybe what what they were intended to uh the, the way these policies actually play out might might not kind of map onto the intentions with which they were created oh that that's interesting yes that that idea i think that that that's sort of comforting and and a, a realistic view of all communication isn't it that the audience don't necessarily get the message you're sending <laughs> that's actually quite good probably uh, the that oh yeah i remember that thinking of some years ago that certain percentage of every GCSE and every A-level in history has to be British history. And the, and the assumption behind that is clearly that, well, British people, you know, so say common sense, British, British people should be able to navigate their own society and how we, how we got here. But of course, then it creates a sense of we and it places at the centre of, of, of history, us, and the rest of the world sort of revolves around us. Whether you, you know, as 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 all nations probably do with their own history, place themselves at the centre of the world. Well, thank you very much. That was that was that was fascinating. I wish you all the best with your researches in the future, and uh, uh, and uh, no doubt we'll look out. Do you this with academic books? They're always very very expensive, aren't they? And they go into academic libraries, and so you have to write a have to write a one that we can all afford. Yes, academic books um, seem to only be written um, and priced for academic libraries, and so um, it's it's definitely on on us as as academics to um, to create our work in in multiple different formats. Um, so I'm I've set myself that task, and and hopefully I'll make good on it by um, in the in the near future. Well, I wish you success in that project, and I've enjoyed oh, our discussion so very very much, and. Uh... Abigail, thank you for joining me on Teachers Talk Radio this morning. Fantastic. Lovely to talk to you, John. Can there be a more abused or misused subject than history? Beloved of dictators, constructors of lies, propagandists, nation builders, and so on. In the state of Florida today, at the behest of Governor Rick Santorum, school teachers are instructed to teach a balanced view of slavery. They must include such observations as slavery existed in Africa before the European slave trade. But slavery is still common today, and Americans weren't the only slavers. And 
in many ways, people benefited from slavery. Hard work, education, and ended up living in America, of course. While this is, of course, absurd and laughable, and only one step away from the new Russian textbook, which describes the war in Ukraine as being instigated by NATO, the West, and Nazis. History is written by men, history is written by winners, history is written by society to view its own self and to construct a story of itself. That concludes another episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs, a podcast you can find on Spotify, Teachers Talk Radio. My guest this week was Dr. Abigail Branford, a postdoctoral researcher at Oxford University. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and you can listen again to my next show in two weeks' time. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.